Good morning, y'all. Thanks for joining us. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here at Trailhead. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for tuning in online. I want to remind you, if you're tuning in on Facebook or on Vimeo, um, you can head over to our website. We are streaming the service live over there. And uh, if you log in, you can chat with some other folks and, and you get access to the bulletin. Uh, you can also get the bulletin through the Church Center app. If you haven't downloaded that yet, I would encourage you to do so. You can find that at the uh, whatever your phone's app store looks like, whatever. Um, and uh, it will help you stay connected and get information. All right, so this week, this week, um, I have a birthday this week. That means I am getting older, which theoretically is a good thing. Uh, Because it means I am still alive. The alternative is much less attractive. Um, I did hear someone this week described as having been born in the late 1900s. That took me a little off guard. Um, Wow. Yeah. Uh, Time's not just coming after me. It's coming after my kids. All my kids were born in the 1990s. They are going to have the privilege of, of being those kids that were born right at the end of the the 1900s, those of you who were born in the 90s, you got a lot to look forward to. When you get old, parents will come up and introduce their children to you by saying, guess when this person was born? In the late 1900s. The kids will look at you and they will go, whoa. And they, they they will interact with you like you literally belong next to the mummy at the art museum's exhibit of old things. Um, so yeah, that's happening. Um, this, this, uh, this week, as I was kind of looking back and thinking about um, uh, my time on earth, thinking about those things that have passed, funny, because I, I noticed over at the bus stop, there was a, uh, Lauren noticed and pointed out to me, a payphone. It's like, holy cow, when's the last time I actually saw a payphone hanging uh, in a public place. Not only that, I, of course, I remember the, the rotary pay phones that were a dime um, and uh, the rotary phones at home. Um, I remember leaving home in the morning on my bike in this small town in Northern California and literally not coming home until sometimes well after sunset. No GPS, no cell phones. Nobody had any idea where I was. And, and honestly, I don't think anyone really cared um, some of you, you folks that are, you're feeling a little anxious already because you don't like your loved ones to be more than three feet away from you. Um, as I was thinking about it, I, I lived through one of the golden ages of Americana, of, of American cultural history in the nineties. It was the season of the buffets. Do you guys remember those of you who lived through the season? Of, I mean, it was like the buffets were the thing, right? Ponderosa, Shoney's, right? The breakfast buffet, super salad. That was one of our favorites, right? Um, kind of the healthy version of the, of the buffet. Of course, the, the, the queen of all buffets was the Golden Corral. Um, and, uh, and, and I'm sure some of these things still exist. I'm, I'm guessing they won't for very much longer, I think, they will become one of the final relics killed by the pandemic. Um, but during that period of time, they were great, right? You pay a single price, you take what you want, you leave what you don't, right? Uh, it wasn't always great food. In fact, honestly, much of it wasn't even good food, but there was a lot of food. 
And, and there was plenty of choices, right? So you got to take your kids, and, and sometimes it was kids eat free, and, and they would just rummage and, and touch everything and sneeze on everything and, and, and cough on everything and eat a few things. And, and it, when you were done, you always got to go to the, the Sunday bar, right? The, the never-ending soft serve. And you could choose to cover it with, with multicolored pieces of um, cardboard or... Um, peanuts and and chocolate chips and and in the end you got to you chose the the orange or the brown sauce to cover it with right and and you could just go back over and over again the buffet uh was pretty awesome all right that was a really long introduction um and here's the point of it a lot of people approach their christian faith like a buffet uh they come to the christian faith with the assumption that they can take what they like and leave the parts that they don't, right? They approach Christianity like it's a philosophy of life uh, or a set of, of religious values. And as long as you get a good collection of them, your collection is good, right? As long as you're, you know, you got love in there, you got grace in there. I don't know, you got, you got something about you know, personal growth and transformation, however you define that, you're, you're good. Um, the problem is this, true Christianity isn't a philosophy of life. True Christianity isn't a set of religious convictions. Um, true Christianity arises from a message. And that message has been delivered to us through the ages by witnesses of witnesses coming from the eyewitnesses. And it is rooted in an actual historical figure who lived an actual historical life and did actual historical things, right? Um, and so you can't just show up and say, you know, I'll take, I'll take the Jesus who fed the hungry and, and uh, said super encouraging stuff, um, but I'm going to leave the the Jesus who did supernatural stuff. That's just kind of weird. <laughs> um, that makes me a little uncomfortable, right? I like the, the death of Jesus, that, that, that message of, of somebody heroically dying for the one that they love. Um, that, that touches my, my heart. But, you know, that whole resurrection stuff, I, I think I'll, I'll skip that, right? Because that's just, I don't know, kind of hard to believe. Dead things don't come back to life. That's just not the way life works. And, and honestly, I think that really the message is, is you know, it's kind of like Titanic, right? What we really need is, is this idea of the heroic person who loves you enough that they're going to let you have the entire door to yourself, right? Yes, there was enough door, uh, room on the door for him, but, but he showed his devotion by not cramping her style or making her uncomfortable, and dying, right? And, and it changed her life, right? She, she felt loved and, and she felt his devotion for her. In, and, and so as a result, her life was transformed. And isn't that really the message of Jesus? That he loved us enough to die for us. And because he died for us, it'll transform us because we'll actually believe we are loved. And if we actually believe we are loved, then, then we'll actually have the courage to live the life we should have lived. No, that has absolutely nothing to do with biblical Christianity. Right? Biblical Christianity is rooted in a historical person who did historical things. And one of the things that I'm going to kind of dig into this morning is that the resurrection is not um, uh, optional to the Christian faith. It wasn't optional in the first century. It's not optional today. It, it, the Bible simply doesn't 
allow us to claim to be followers of Christ and reject the essential message of the resurrection of Christ. Um, Paul, in our passage, has been talking a lot about the importance and the purpose of the death of Jesus. Um, verse 28 is the, the conclusion, or I'll say transition conclusion, of, of a line of thought that he's been developing since the middle of chapter 3. Um, and, and Paul is making it very, very clear that, that without the resurrection, the death of Christ has no meaning. Even though he spent most of his time expounding on the meaning of, of Christ's death, why he had to die, what he did when he died, you know, the, the, the plan of God in his death. Um, Paul is at this point putting a period on the end of the sentence and making it clear that without the resurrection, the death itself has absolutely no, no meaning. And I'm going to give you three reasons this morning from our passage why the resurrection of Christ is absolutely essential, right? The first is that it is the proof of his blessing. It is the proof of his blessing, right? In, at the end of chapter 4, um, I'll start in verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. That's from Genesis 15, talking about Abraham. Abraham um, uh, received a promise from God. He believed that promise. And his faith was, was counted to him as righteousness. It was imputed to him as righteousness. And Paul's making the point that, that we're... We come to God by the same way, right? God extends a promise to us by grace, and we receive it by faith. Verse 24, uh, verse 23, but it wasn't written just for our sake alone, verse 24, but for ours also, it will be counted to us. Righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, verse 25, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He was delivered up for our trespasses. Paul has spent extensive time explaining that, 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 um, that the substitutionary work of Jesus in the, in the cross um, ultimately was purposeful, intentional, full of meaning, right? Uh, because it solved our greatest problem. In chapter 1, Paul has already received that the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, right? That, that's a blanket statement that, that we've, in Steve language, I've basically said the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against our attempt to ungod God and to be unjust toward those created in his image, right? Our attempt to be God instead of humbly depend on God and our attempt to defeat others instead of love others, conquer others, overcome others, find our security in their insecurity, find our, our riches in their impoverishment, take advantage of them, compete with them, um, curry the favor of those that we find more powerful and despise those that we find less or, or, or just plain dumb, right? We, we, we try to ungod God and, and, um, and are unjust toward those created in his image. Paul spends the rest of chapter one and all of chapter two and, and the first part of, part of chapter three basically trying to convince everybody, I'm not describing somebody else. I'm describing you. Right? That's kind of Paul's point in the first three chapters, because he knows human nature. We're going to read that, and we're automatically going to think of somebody else. Yeah, that describes so-and-so. That's absolutely true of that group of people. That's absolutely fundamentally true of, 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 of those people, right? We're continually othering, and in othering, we find people to condemn and ways to approve ourselves. So Paul 
undermines that, attacks that, and, 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 and makes it clear that, man, this just includes you and it includes me, right? It is a universal, unsolvable problem. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against our fundamental idolatrous desire to ungod God and be God in His place and to rob others of the dignity of being created in the image of God that we might feel important or secure or, or more worthy, right? So what did God do in the middle of chapter 3? God stepped in to solve the problem we couldn't solve by paying the debt we couldn't pay, right? Jesus paid the price of our redemption by becoming our propitiation, some of those loaded words from chapter 3, right? He became our satisfying sacrifice. He, he paid our debt, by ultimately placing himself in harm's way, right? So, so God's righteous judgment could be satisfied. He put himself in harm's way so that God might in the end be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. He might remain just while being able to justify the ungodly, right? Which is a fundamental dilemma. How can a holy God make sinners holy without making himself unholy? How can a righteous God declare the unrighteous righteous without himself losing his righteousness? He does it through the substitutionary sacrificial work of Jesus, right? Because, because he satisfied justice, I can receive mercy, right? He was my substitute in judgment, right? And I'm going to throw this out there because I know there are people that, that still, this is a, a controversial doctrine today. Right? There are people today that are going to be like, well, what you're, what you're preaching is divine child abuse, right? Jesus just died to be our example of love, not to satisfy justice. Why would a father want to, to punish his son? That, 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 that doesn't make any sense at all. And, and what we have to realize is that in the mystery of the Trinity, this isn't a father killing his son out of some misguided sense of vengeance. This is God absorbing the pain of our rebellion. Right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One, one, uh, three who's one what? Right? One God. And, and in the great mystery of, of the Trinity, this is God himself absorbing the penalty of our rebellion against him in love so that we can be delivered from that penalty. This is the fundamental heart of how all forgiveness works. Those who forgive must absorb the pain of the wrong inflicted against them. Right? God absorbs the pain of, of, of our rebellion, pays the price of our sin that he might give us as a gift, a righteousness not our own. Right? He took our sins so that we could take his righteousness. As, as Paul says in, in the first part of our verse, he was delivered up for our trespasses. Right? Or as he says in one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he, that is God the Father, made him, that is Jesus, God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right, This beautiful doctrine we've talked about called double imputation. My sin was imputed or credited to Christ, and he died under its weight. His act of righteousness, act of obedience was credited to me, and I live under its blessing. I sinned, and the death 
and death is the penalty of sin, right? Now, the essence of death is separation. We've talked about this in the past. Death isn't the cessation of being, it is the separation of being. So physical death is when, when my immaterial part is separated from my body, right? Spiritual death is, is when I, as a, a creature designed to, to live in the presence of God, I'm separated from the presence of God. Right? When I'm cut off from, from what gives life, what provides life, that's death. Death is, in essence, separation. Physical death, spiritual death, right? Um, and it is, from a human perspective, irreversible. Right? This is one of the basic things we learn in childhood. Dead things don't come back. Right? They just don't. Dead things are dead. They go to this dark prison from which they never emerge, right? All of life teaches us this. The good news of the gospel isn't just that Jesus loved me enough to die for me. The good news of the gospel is that he did it on mission to undo what I had done, right? The message of the gospel is that he not only died, but went into death on mission to destroy death that death might die. See, the resurrection is proof that Jesus uh, didn't just love me enough to die for me, but that he was powerful enough to save me, right? It, it, it is the proof that he can do what he said he would do. It is proof that I can be justified even though I am a sinner. It is proof that I can be raised even though I am separated from God, right? That he is powerful enough to save me. He was delivered up for my trespasses, but he was raised for my justification, right? And if he didn't rise, he didn't win. If he didn't rise, I am still ensnared by death. And even worse, I am still under the penalty of my sin. Because if he didn't rise, the payment hasn't been made. Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, the Corinthians were struggling with this idea of bodily resurrection. Uh, it didn't philosophically or theologically make any sense to them. And so they were, they were struggling with this concept. Um, and um, we often think that people back in the day, you know, in the time of Jesus, they accepted things like physical resurrection, um, you know, we're... we're chronological snobbery. You know what I'm saying? We look back and we think, well, they were ignorant and, and somewhat barbaric. And, and, and as a result, it was much easier for them to believe these crazy things. Uh, it was not. Um, absolutely not. They struggled with the reality of it as much as we do today, right? It was as much counterintuitive and, and counterphilosophical to them as it, as it was to us. And, and in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lays out this very, very progressive, very detailed argument uh, apologetic in support of the physical resurrection of Jesus. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Your faith is futile. In other words, it, it can't actually get you what you think it'll get you, right? Your faith is only as strong as the object you've placed your faith in, Right? I mean, the insane asylum is, is a graphic illustration of misplaced faith. You've got a lot of people who have placed their faith in all the wrong things, and they're fully convinced that, that they're right. But their faith is only as effective as what they've placed it in, right? And what Paul is saying is if Christ didn't rise from the dead, 
That's a futile place to place your faith. You're placing your faith in someone who's dead. And someone who's dead can't fulfill a promise to those who are alive. A dead Savior can't bless us. The resurrection is proof that He can. But the resurrection isn't just proof of of His ability to bless. It is the power of His ability to bless. Right? It is the power of His blessing. Christ's death would have had no meaning without the resurrection, right? Um, Christ would have had no ability to justify if He had remained dead. Uh, A Savior who didn't defeat our greatest enemy couldn't save us from our greatest enemy, right? His resurrection is proof that He won, but it's also His ongoing power to bless those that have faith in Him. The author of Hebrews makes this clear. Um, Because Jesus rose from the dead, because He is alive, He continues to unleash the power of resurrection in the lives of those who come to Him, right? Take a look at this. This is um, Hebrews 7, 23 through 25. The author of Hebrews says this, the former priests were many in number. Pause there. He's talking about the Old Testament priests who would bring the daily, weekly, monthly, and and even the yearly sacrifices, the great high priest. Um, There were many of them, right? Not only because there was a lot of sacrificing to be going on, but because they would die, right? The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. I love how just obvious that is, right? You got to keep replacing them because they keep dying, right? But he, and, and he's speaking about Jesus here, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus' priesthood is fundamentally different than all the priests who came before him. Why? Because he's still alive, right? Because he came back from the dead. And because he has been raised... His priesthood never expires, right? Unlike the priests who came before, the office never goes vacant. There is never another generation like him or following him because he never vacates the position. And consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. I love this. Now, let's be clear about what we're saying. He always lives to make intercession for them. Some of you are going to be like, well, Steve, I thought when I believed in Jesus, he had already interceded for me and that that it was all done, right? That when I believed in Jesus, my sin was imputed to Christ and his righteousness was imputed to me. And I'm declared righteous in that moment, right? And that's absolutely true. Well, then what need is there for ongoing intercession? Right? Is this mean that God is, is always kind of reluctantly accepting me and, 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 and is always begrudging more grace to me because I'm such a sinner, but Jesus keeps convincing him, you know, hey, 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 you know, I died and rose again. And, and so he's always trying to convince this reluctant God to love me. No, that, that's completely misreading this passage, right? When you believe in Jesus, there is instantaneous justification. Your sin is imputed to Christ in its completion. 
His righteousness, his act of righteousness is imputed to you. You have his complete and full record of, of obedience, right? And, 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 and this isn't just an impersonal transaction. It's a deeply personal union, right? This isn't just take place on some ledger somewhere in heaven. This takes place in, in, in an active relationship between you and your Savior where he takes your sin and he gives you his active righteousness. It is, it is a beautiful, deep, powerful, loving union. Jesus died and he rose and now he lives to make intercession for us, right? But what does that mean that he continues to make intercession for us? Well, look at the verses because I want you to see who's being changed by the intercession that Christ continues to offer. Is it God or is it us, right? He holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him. The ongoing intercession of Christ works on us, not God the Father. The, inter the continuing intercession of Christ isn't, isn't Christ continually trying to convince a reluctant God. He's trying to transform a reluctant me. And not trying, He is. He is continually taking the effective work of salvation the atonement work of his death and resurrection that is always on display before the Father. It is always gloriously accepted by the Father. It is always accepted and, and, and rejoiced in, right? I never lose my acceptance or, or my privileged position as being in Christ, covered in the very righteousness of God, delighted in by, by my God and, and my Creator. But there's a transformative process by which I enter into the reality of what's already been declared to be true and has already been won on my behalf. The power of the resurrection is progressively experienced as I progressively am transformed into its reality. Its effectiveness has never, is not in question. It is fully and completely effective. It is, it is effectual on my behalf from the moment of inception, but it is transformative as I enter into the progression of its, of, its, of its dawning reality on my soul. As I enter more and more deeply into this relationship with this Savior, as I come to see this less and less as simply a religious transaction and see it more and more as a loving friendship, as, as, as the resurrection of Christ isn't simply historical reality, but becomes a present comfort. As, as His resurrection becomes my transformation, Christ is continually interceding to save to the uttermost. Now, here's, here's the beautiful thing about this. The end result's never in question. He will save us to the uttermost. The trans, transformation will be made right? But he is in this season at work in us to deliver us in a greater and greater way into the freedom that he has won for us through the resurrection. And he's doing that through the power of the resurrection. So I'm talking about a greater experience of what I already have through the work of Christ as he is saving me 
to the uttermost. God the Father is, is satisfied, more than satisfied with the righteousness that covers us, the act of righteousness of Christ. Jesus is continually freeing us into the freedom we already have in him. The price is paid and he continues to do the work to, to free us. The resurrection is proof that Christ won our blessing. The resurrection is the power of that blessing as we are transformed into his likeness, right? Uh, the resurrection is also the promise of his blessing, right? It is proof that my sin has been removed in the past, that I am, in fact, justified before God. It is the power that is changing me and freeing me so that I can become more like the resurrected Christ um, who loves me and, and, and whom I am learning every day to love more and more in response, right? But the resurrection is also the promise of the full payment of God's blessing in the future. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, that same passage we've looked at, verses 20 through 26, I'm going to take some of the key ideas, says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who has fallen asleep. Jump ahead a few verses, then comes the end, so he, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, or the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power jump ahead a little bit more. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Let me kind of unpack this series of thoughts. Jesus, who has been raised from the dead, we're told is first fruits, right? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits um, was an offering in the Old Testament. When, when you worked... Um, throughout the, the season to till the soil and to sow the seed and to tend the crops. And then finally, the, the, the harvest comes, right? And the harvest comes in waves. And the first fruits, you would take the best of the first harvest and present them before God, right? So, so the first fruits offering was when you would take the best of the first harvest and you would come and, and present them as a, as, a, as a gift of gratitude, as an offering, as, as a statement of humility before God saying, um, this, this fruitfulness came from you and I return it to you. And, and, and I want you to see that it was both an act of gratitude and celebration for what God had already done, but also an act of faith for what God would do, right? The first fruits offering was, was a declaration, not only have you been good to me and I have received the goodness of it, but I know there's more to come. I can freely give you the best and the first because there's so much more to come, right? Jesus was the first fruits offering of the resurrection. He was the first and he was the best, but he was not the last. The resurrection of Christ was not a one-off miracle, right? The, the raising of Jesus wasn't just about Jesus. It wasn't just that he was worthy of being raised, that he made us worthy of being raised as well. That the harvest would be taken in and it defines the quantity and the quality. That he would not be alone in the transformation. He would not be alone in the conquering of death. And those who followed with him would be raised in the same manner he had been raised, completely victorious over this enemy. It is the promise of my complete redemption. 
that I will not just be redeemed in some spiritual, um, ethereal way. That I'm not just going to be pardoned for the sins that I've committed, but I'm going to be redeemed, holistically redeemed, body, soul, and spirit redeemed to be what I was created to be. To, to actually be transformed and set free from the sin that now uh, attacks and, and, with, and, and holds and, and, and enslaves me. The limitations that I take as being merely human, right? What do you, we make a mistake and we're like, well, what would you expect? I'm human. And, and, and the reality is, is, yeah, you are human, but everything we know of being human is defined by being fallen and broken and conflicted, and struggling. There will come a day, follower of Christ, where you are raised in the image of Christ. And you will no longer struggle to be what you are created to be. You will be able to follow every impulse of your heart. Because every impulse of your heart will be toward life and goodness. It will not be toward the idolatry of trying to ungod God and, and, and to act in injustice toward others. You will love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you will love your neighbor as you love yourself. Without conflict and without struggle. Because when you are raised, everything in you will be aligned with your purpose. Everything in you that is unworthy, everything in you that is broken, everything in you that is conflicted, everything in you that is self-destructive will be removed from you and left in the grave. You will rise in His glory because He is risen. It is the promise that he was the first, but he will not be the last. But what I love about this promise is that it's not just a personal promise of transformation. It is that. But it is so much more than just about, about the promise of my personal blessing. The harvest that he describes here is not just individuals who are transformed into the image of Christ but the transformation of the systems that those individuals create together. The power structures, the systems, the patterns that we have created in our worldliness that compete with God are going to be completely transformed because the inauguration of the new kingdom isn't just about raised individuals. It's about a completely transformed society of individuals coming together in the purpose of imaging God and loving others. When he says, then comes the end, and he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and every power. He's not saying that he's destroying all systems. He's destroying the sinful ones, the worldly ones, the ones that were designed to compete with God instead of rely on God, the ones that were designed to un-God God and, and defraud those created in the image of God. follower of Christ, when you fall asleep in Christ, which is the biblical way of talking about death, it will only be like the passing of a night, a temporary darkness that will give way to the dawning of the morning. But this promise is so much greater. 
than just the conquering of my personal death. It is the promise of the defeat of the systems of death. It is the promise of freedom from fear and from those who wield it to control, to manipulate. Have you grown tired in your striving against injustice? Have you grown weary of the culture of death and fear and manipulation? Have you been tempted to give in to despair because our best efforts seem so ineffectual to bring true and lasting justice or blessing? Y'all take comfort. When Christ rose from the dead, he was the first fruits of a new harvest. His rising was the inauguration of a king over a new kingdom and the promise that light and life would defeat death and darkness, that the kingdom of God would destroy and supplant the kingdom of man. You know, all those children's stories that we love so much where the dragons are defeated, where the good guys win, and you get to a point where you're just like, yeah, those are such kids' stories, right? Because we know in the reality of the broad scope of human history, good guys don't win. And the darkness, in the end, swallows the light. And that's exactly the despair our hearts would have to give into if Christ had not been raised from the dead. But because he has, we are not fools to hope. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, it is not only good, but it is reasonable to expect that the first fruit harvests that come from that resurrection will transform not just me, but everything. He was delivered up for our transgressions. And he was raised for our justification. And praise God that he was. Praise God that he was. Because this isn't about just getting the right set of religious convictions to help us make it through the day, to be more kind and loving people in a broken world. This is the foundation of genuine hope. That this broken world will not have the last word. And light will overcome darkness. And the good guy in the end does, in fact, win. All right, let me close this in a word of prayer. And then we're going to share communion together. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that um, you are a good and just and loving God. That in your wise plan. You worked through what we would call foolishness 
that in order to be victorious, you embraced defeat. That in order to give life, you entered death. In order to forgive the unforgivable, you became the embodiment of the offense. You suffered in our place that we might be blessed in yours. Lord, will you break our hearts with these profound truths? Will you awaken within us a responding hope that because Christ was raised, we too have hope for ourselves, for those that we love, and for the world that we want to create together. We thank you that we are justified because our Savior died and rose again.